the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this 820 AM The Word broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well, this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word. I have a special guest today. Her name is Kim Wentz. And Kim, welcome to Heart of the City. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I, I asked you to uh, to send me a little uh, introduction. And when you sent it to me, I was like, wow, I did not know this about you. You're a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, retired Air Force pilot who led over 100 C-17 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. You served as a fighter intel officer in Saudi Arabia and I like this part, you worked as a part of the Air Force One advance team. And since you've retired from the military, you've been serving as the executive director of For Us organization. We want to talk about that, obviously, in a little bit. A national charity based in Tacoma, whose mission is to make abortions rare by choice. And so I want to just kind of get some background from you, because you have an interesting story. Yeah, I've been all over the map there. (laughs) It is. So um, as we uh, get into this, uh, not originally from the Northwest. Nope. I am a cheesehead. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. From Milwaukee. Yep. And then I went to the Air Force Academy uh, because it was a great way to pay for college and get a great education, and then kind of launched my military career from there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Um, what was life like for you growing up in Wisconsin? Just normal uh, childhood? Uh... Yeah, I, my parents were both teachers. My dad's a high school football coach. I have an older brother. And uh, yeah, we were just a typical family of four living the Midwest life. Yeah, so yeah. I grew up Lutheran. Uh huh. And we went to church. And... Of, uh, Lutheran, of course, in Wisconsin. That's I right. mean, are there is there anybody else but, but Lutherans? <laughs> Maybe in a that few area? Methodists sprinkled in there, but yeah, it's heavy in the Lutheran. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, what made you decide on the military? It was. Um... A twofold thing, actually maybe threefold. Uh, the summer before, I had been backpacking in Colorado, and I, I loved the Colorado area. And then um, I'd always wanted to go to Notre Dame. That's where my dad and my brother went. And one way to pay for it was through uh, ROTC and a military scholarship. And um, my dad was like, well, since you like Colorado so much, have you ever thought of the Air Force Academy? I had no idea what it was. I went to my high school. They had a, a college night, and there was a recruiter there. And I saw the films, and I'm like, oh, that would be kind of cool. And then maybe I could be a pilot, and, you know, all these dreams kind of started to unfold from there. Mm-hmm. And so working with my liaison officer, um, I was able to be uh, picked up by the volleyball team there, too. I played volleyball for the academy. And so it all just kind of came together that way. Last minute, my junior year in high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. so out of the academy, what happens next? Um, you can either go to pilot training or you can do any number of non-flying jobs. There's just a myriad I won't even list. And so um, I elected to go to pilot training. Had um, an ear problem while I was at pilot training and ended up being medically disqualified. 
Um, I ended up as an intel officer for an F-15 unit, and they were a great group of guys. I traveled and deployed all over the world with them. That's how I ended up in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, as they got to know me, they heard about my story and how I was disqualified, and they're like, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash. And so they all started working and helped me get my medical waiver. And then from there, I was able to go to pilot training. Yeah. So So. what's that like? Uh, Probably not that many females in pilot training, or were there? There were not many. In Mm -hmm. fact, when I, um, about four years into my flying career, I they had me do an, um, an interview, or I did an interview for the newspaper, and I found out that I was one of like 236 female pilots in like a pool of 5,000 in the Air Force. And that was in the 90s, and I know it's gotten better since then, mm-hmm. but it was a rare, there were not many women pilots at that time. Yeah. There's a lot more now, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, in that training, <clears throat> so uh, you were training to fly what at that time as far as? When you t- go to pilot training, everybody flies the, the same two jets first off. And so, um, and then depending on how well you do, uh, you have a thing called uh, selection night. And then all the airplanes that are available at your graduation date, you, who are you they rack and stack you and you get to pick. So, um, and then from there you go to specified training. So I, I picked see. C-21s and then from there, I, so I did my follow-on training in Texas at the Learjet Corporation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a C-21 is a... It's a, a Lear 35. It, it's a Lear for 35s. Yeah. So you flew jets for a while. Yeah, I flew generals around and um, it, it can also be turned into a mobile hospital. So flew um, wounded and evacuated people. Mm-hmm. 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 So then how did you end up flying C-17s? So... That is considered um, like not a military deployment aircraft, so you can you can't make your whole career of that. You eventually have to get into some kind of military air air training, and so my follow-on assignment was 141s, and I flew them here out of McCord. But the 141 is was very old, and they were being phased out. So I only did that for about a year, and then I went to school for C-17 training, and came back and flew uh, C-17 C-17s here at McCord. Yeah, and so those of uh, you that live in the Tacoma area and live near McCord, you see the big cargo planes flying in and out and doing touch and goes, and and yeah. and that's what you flew. Yeah, that's an incredible machine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So a hundred missions. I did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what are those missions? What, what do you do on a mission? I mean, you're just basically flying cargo in and out of country or what? Uh... People and cargo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we pretty much staged out of the most of my flying was done after nine eleven, And so we had a stage at Frankfurt. And so they would, most of the jets were in Germany. They'd only fly back here for like their annual inspections. So you would fly to Germany and you'd be put into crew rest and enter into this thing called a stage and you'd get in line for all the missions going in and out of Afghanistan every day. And so, you know, a typical mission would be you'd depart Frankfurt, you'd hit a tanker, you'd fly to um, Uzbekistan, which is just north of Afghanistan, um, get fuel there, upload down a little bit, then fly into a couple places in Afghanistan, land at Tajikistan, which is just outside again, close mm-hmm. to Iran, then take off and either hit a tanker or have to drop in at Turkey for fuel and go back to Germany. So that would, depending on how many stops you did in theater, that would be about a 24 or 26 hour mission. Wow. And you'd get 
16 to 24 hours off and you'd wake up and do it again yeah yeah so it was non-stop flying in and out of theater yeah mm-hmm. yeah i was uh, not to get too far off but i was watching a special the the other day about b2 uh bomber pilots flying from kansas to <laughs> to uh afghanistan a 44-hour mission that's incredible long missions but i still think you know i was delivering the guys to the ground war who were doing mm-hmm. the, the really hard work so my my part was seemed very small when you saw what they had to do yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you had mentioned that uh, you're flying C-17s after 9-11, but uh, before that, you had a very interesting job. You were uh, you were uh, working with the Air Force One uh, yeah. for the president, actually, um, doing what? Well, that is an addition. Like, I would fly from my C-17 base to, to do the Air Force One stops while I was still doing oh, interesting. my flying. Yeah, so it's okay. a, considered an additional duty. Sorry. Okay. And... Um, so for that job, um, it takes an incredible amount of effort to move the president front to just one location. There's many organizations involved, including Secret Service, the White House staff, the press, the airport itself. And so I represented Air Force One in that food fight. I would show up like a week in advance, and you have to make room for everything on the ramp, for Air Force One, for the backup jet, for the limos, the helicopters, you know, and then the airport wants to shove you way out, you know, somewhere where you're not going to disturb their operations, and the press wants you to be right up there, and Secret Service needs all these protection measures, and so I had to protect the airplane and everybody's um, agenda, mm-hmm. and um, that's that's what I did, and so you had to secure fuel, you know, if the, air for, the plane needed special cakes for people on board or a special food for anyone we were carrying. I, I did all of that. Um, and then just the general planning and all the mission planning for the Air Force One pilot himself, because many times he'd be doing three or four stops a day and didn't have time, you know, day after day to constantly look at the weather and make sure everything was ready for the plane to come in. And there's very specific requirements for security for Air Force One that had to be met. So I was responsible for all that. Mm-hmm. So you did that during the time, the final year or so of President Clinton and then on into uh, oh, Yeah, mostly President for Bush. President Bush. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sounds like a fascinating job. It was an, it was a great job. Yeah. Just yeah. a great experience. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, how many more years then were you uh, in the military and, and flying? Um, I flew until 2005, so about four more years after that. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, we started to have a family. My husband is also a military pilot. We were, I can't even believe we had a family because we were never together, really. <laughs> and um, yeah. and we just, you know, I decided to leave active duty. Uh, my time was up. And then I was able to find a really great job at the Western Air Defense Sector at McCourt Air Force Base, which is a full-time guard job. And basically what they do there is we have aircraft on alert all across the West Coast. We defend everything from west of the Mississippi. And so if the air traffic control um you know, people aren't behaving or they, we find things out over the radar, out over the water. We launch fighters to go check things out. Mm-hmm. And so I worked there my final nine years. I see. Until I made it to my active duty retirement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you are a retired military. I now. am retired. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> well, in that, all, all of that, um, one of the, th- and how we met is you, there's an organization, organization called For Us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to, for you to share how did you get involved or how did you and her husband start for us and what is it? Okay, so if you can, I have to kind of lay the groundwork a little bit. But back in 2003, um, we were on this deployment and 
my husband got into this kind of, not a heated argument, but a, a little bit of a debate with a, a man who was asking us what we were doing about abortion. And honestly, the answer was not much. You know, we we try and vote, you know, correctly, and we donated a little bit of money to, like, like the local crisis pregnancy centers, but we weren't really doing much. Mm-hmm. And my husband is um, the son of a single mom. And I think that this conversation really hit him deep down in his soul. And something took a hold of him that could only be God in my mind, because um, I was not even like really pro-life at this mm-hmm. point in my life. I, I was always where I think so many women are is, you know, I don't think I could ever have an abortion, but I'm not going to tell some other lady what she can do with her body. Right. Mm -hmm. I just didn't even want to join the debate. And so he um, read an article about how effective ultrasounds were in helping women essentially see the truth and change their mind and and choose to keep their baby. And so from this deployment, we had about $3,000 that was extra. And he thought, well, shoot, maybe we could buy an ultrasound machine and donate it to our local crisis pregnancy center. So he called up, you know, I can still remember this phone call, calls up, speaks to this lady named Ingrid, and she's like, well, I don't know how much an ultrasound costs, but I'll get right back. And mm-hmm. like she hung up and literally three minutes later, she called back and she's like, it's $55,000. And my <laughs> husband's like, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so right. we were $52,000 short. Right. But if you know my husband, uh, he's a problem solver. And uh-huh. so... He came up with this idea, and the first one, I'll spare you all the details, but he had many ideas. But the first one we actually ex- executed, the first for us, it was actually uh, a ride for us. And it was a 100-mile bike ride in the Tacoma area as a fundraiser. And he worked f- for nine months. Um, and I, you know, I kind of grudgingly helped him. I, like, plastered the smile on my face. But we had, like, we were both flying for the war. Um, then I found out I was pregnant with our second child, and um, we were doing this major remodel on my on our house, and we live in this. You have to see our house; it's like an 1889 money pit. You know, it was extensive. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. And just you know, um, my mom passed away unexpectedly. Just all these things were piling up on me. And um, and then he decides to launch this charity, and he would work nonstop. Like he would sleep maybe four hours a night. And anytime he wasn't out flying, he was out you know trying to pitch it and find people to support us and get volunteers and you know people to donate and. Um, I just kind of sat back and was like, what are you doing? Right. And it was really not one of the best years of our marriage, right. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> right. And um, we had we held the first event, and we literally had like 101 people come out and volunteer, and we had 99 riders. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, it, and the, I think what God is so awesome at is like, the amount we started with, $3,000, is exactly what we raised. And so it was very discouraging. Uh-huh. And so I was kind of thinking, yeah, maybe this will be the end yeah, of this. Yeah. But um, what happened was there was a man who had seen our flyers, and um, he was a vet and had an ultrasound machine that had never been used. And he decided to donate it to CareNet. And... Um, and it was just because some man, not not anything we did with this huge bike ride, but some man had seen this flyer and knew what we were trying to do. And so we ended up having our first machine. And we found we had several very committed volunteers. So my husband's like, well, let's, we'll do, you know, we'll revamp. We'll, you know, take our lessons learned and, and do better next year. And so every year 
we've changed things up. You know, we, then we added a walk, then we added a run, then we added, you know, a 5K, 10K half marathon, then we added a family fun fest, and then um, it became a mission trip. So, it not, you know, last year it was a three-day mission trip where we have 300 volunteers that literally come for three days. They spend 300 of their own dollars mm-hmm. and then they work like nonstop <laughs> to set up host and then tear down this giant event uh-huh. um, and by doing that they raise all the money that we need to actually execute the event for you know the park fees the porta potties the police everything and that way when people come to the event every dollar they spend on a hot dog or registration or whatever they do it all goes to the purpose of buying the ultrasound machine mm-hmm. and so um you know it's grown every year and it's been mainly through my husband and his, you know, just his will, tenacity. His, his tenacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that has also, but because I've been doing this side by side, you know, for the first couple of years, like you can grin and bear it only so long before mm-hmm. you start to get upset. And, um, I was driving home from work and, um, I was listening to uh, Catholic radio and, they had, um, it was like a, a Friday call and ask any kind of question you want. And so someone called in and asked a question on the Apostles' Creed. And it said, um, why um, do we say he will come again to judge the living and the dead? And I was like, wow, I never really thought about that. But that is an excellent question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had really no idea. And so the apologist gave the Catholic perspective and he said, well, not only are you judged when you die for um, what you did and you did not do while here on earth, but at the end of time, at the coming of Christ, we're all going to stand before Christ and we're going to see how all those yeses and nos God wove together to come to his ultimate victory. And that answer, like I was driving down the highway, it literally hit me like a ton of bricks and I almost had to pull over Mm. because the vision that came into my head was that I was standing in front of Christ and there were like all these people behind me. And I was like, who are these people? And then it dawned on me. They were all the people that had lived their lives here on earth just because I had said yes. And even though, um, I wasn't like super enthused and I was kind of, you know, pouting my whole way these first couple years. Um, I was just really being obedient. And it was like he gave me that little note of encouragement that I Mm -hmm. needed to keep going, right? Mm -hmm. Like, just keep being obedient, Kim. I just need you to say yes a few more times. And so as I've been working in this movement and I see these incredible women who are running these clinics and you hear the testimonies of these women who were like, you know, I walked into, or I was going to walk into Planned Parenthood, but I decided to go over here first. And I'm so thankful that I saw the picture of my baby and these women were willing to help me because, you know, I have this gift from God that I would have just thrown away had I had not, had I walked into Planned Parenthood. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it still gets hard for me sometimes, but the thing that even motivates me more now is all the women that I have run across who are my age, who are just kind of so broken down and sad on the inside because they've had an abortion and they feel like they were deceived and that if someone had just offered to help them a little bit, they would have made a different choice. Mm-hmm. And um, they've been holding that in them, side them for so long. Uh, it's been breaking them down and just feeling their pain. Um, I just want to help the moms too. So sure. um, <clears throat> that's why we keep doing what we're doing. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Heart of the City. <clears throat> I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development, and with me is Kim Went, and uh, she's uh, 
uh, helped found with her husband, Diego, the organization for us. And uh, what does an ultrasound do and help at the pregnancy center? So when you've provided that machine for them and you give it to, to them, what do they do with it and how does it help the the expectant mom? Okay. So we provide them an entire package. They Not only do they get the machine, but we also provide a $4,000 voucher for them to train two technicians. Mm-hmm. And we also provide a plasma TV to put on the wall in the room. And we don't do that for the mom because she's like sitting right there. She can see it on the screen. But we do that for like the unsupportive boyfriend, the unhappy mom or family member that's usually there, or maybe that's a supportive member, that so they can actually see the ultrasound. Um, and we do this, and I'm going to answer your question here. But, that's all right. Um, so when a, fir- a woman first walks into the center, um, she's assigned a mentor and someone that she can just talk to. And they usually do the pregnancy test and the STD testing. And so she... Um, they're they're just let they're known they they let let them know all the things that the center can do for them for free they're they're medical they have um like a baby boutique they offer parenting classes and finance classes like they just want to walk with you every step of the way and once that girl feels like she's not alone anymore Mm -hmm. they say would you like to see an ultrasound and so they take her into the room they do the ultrasound usually they can pick up the heartbeat on the machines now between six and eight weeks and like to hear that heartbeat going, it's hard not to deny that it's alive. And, you know, a lot of people think it's just a blob of cells, but you can pick up fingers and toes at 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think when, you, when you're when you no longer afraid that you're alone and then you see a picture of what's actually inside of you, it is completely a mind-altering and heart-altering event. And even the, the, t- the texts have told me, like, there'll be the boyfriend in there with their arms crossed. And then they see, they see the baby and they hear the heartbeat. And it, it's almost like a visible, that's my baby, too. Yeah. And um, it's incredible what, what the ultrasound can do. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> having read some of your uh, documentation, uh, what I saw was that uh, the average ultrasound machine, you get about a thousand uses or so. Yeah, there's, we say, every, you know, if you take all the statistics, on average, mm-hmm. 90% of the time, the women will choose life. And we say, because it only lasts about five years because of the technology aspect of it, every machine will save a thousand lives. And so far, we've donated 55 machines um, in our 12-year career, and we're poised to deliver 25 this year alone. Wow. So, but we do have a big event that, I, um, that goes on here in Lakewood Park, mm-hmm. uh, in, Fort, um, in Lakewood, Washington, at Fort Stillicum Park on August 10th and 11th. Mm-hmm. And it's a family fun event. We have an all-in-one fun run where we've taken the best of all the fad runs, the mud run, the color run, the Elvis run, and spread them, across, uh, um, spread them out across a 5K course or a 2K course. Uh, that's both Friday night and then Saturday morning. And then we follow it up. We're going to try and break the record for the world's largest squirt gun fight. Oh, wow. So it's a super family-friendly event. Um, mm-hmm. Every dollar, if you come out and you support us, will go towards ultrasound machines. And honestly, you know, if people don't show up, then we can't buy the machines. So we're counting on people to come and help us that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be a great family event. It and, would. And, and it's going to be know, fun. <laughs> a four-year-old kid or a, you know, 80-year-old grandma can, right. can help participate yeah. in and that. And if you don't want to do the mud, you don't have to do the mud. Do right. whatever obstacles you want. If you don't want to do any of them, that's fine, too. Right. Just come out and have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
So if somebody wants to check out uh, your organization, what's your website so they can do that? To find our mission, it's uh, forus.org. So for, it's the the number four. The number four. And then U-S. Dot O-R-G. Mm-hmm. And then from there, if you scroll down a little bit, you can um, find uh, the Forest Fun Fest, and that'll take you to the event itself. And if you're interested in a really hardworking <laughs> mission trip, there's another um, segment there called the 300, and that's the miss- the mission trip aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 you have people that come from other parts of the country to yeah, do that. Yeah, we don't have. You? Uh, they're called Lifelines. They're teams of ten. Uh, and they're coming in to work those three days of the event, and then return when they go back home. We'll take whatever profits we make from the event and buy an ultrasound machine for their local pregnancy center in yeah. their city. Yeah. So that's kind of how we're getting nationwide. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Kim, I want to thank you for mm-hmm. joining me today on Heart of the City. I hope our listeners will respond, whether it's by prayer, whether it's by sharing a donation to for us you can you know, donate online too if you don- can't come to the event <laughs> exactly there's always uh, opportunities and and um, you and your husband are doing a great work here and uh, we pray that the lord will continue to bless you and uh, when you're there in heaven seeing all those people behind uh, you and saying you were a part of helping save our life i think that's uh, that's a reward that you and I Come be a part of it with me. God bless. Thank you. You've been listening to this 820 AM, The Word, special Heart of the City. For more information on how your pastor or your ministry can be featured on 820 AM, The Word, call Chuck Olmstead, 206-269-6216, or go to thewordseattle.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.